Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk Radio Show about Opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined tonight by Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, tonight, Oliver and Tobias return from a weekend at Festival 019 at Opera Philadelphia. You'll get their takes on the shows they saw, plus testimonials from audience members that our boys harassed in the lobby, a double interview with Opera Philadelphia's New Works administrator Sarah Williams and mezzo-soprano Daniela Mack, and most importantly, find out who drank too much from the hotel minibar. And then in the two-minute drill, the Mets season starts tonight. Agma and Nyko get into it. Plus, our hot takes and all the news from Opera Land that you need to know. And, of course, you can call us on air. Get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. 847-866-9687. Or you can just tweet us at Opera Box Score. Go ahead and post on that Facebook page as well. Michigan Wolverines' dreadful performance Ooh. over the weekend. Uh, that's why I'm watching the Rugby World Cup. Nobody. Okay, so moving on. Nobody else is watching that. I mean, I I would watch it, but for probably different reasons than you guys are watching it. So, guys, did you know that Patrick Mahomes is going to throw for a million yards and seven million touchdowns, and I'm going to name my son uh, Robert Mahomes right? Yes, I feel I like did it's going to be terribly. two million by the time I don't know week seven rolls uh, around. One so. can only hope. Yeah, not the same for my beloved Razorbacks, who are already next to last in the SEC West. Wow, long what's, long season to get to what's, last what's, place. What's coming up for them? Well, you know they are going to be playing the other the last team in the SEC West, uh, Texas A&M, on Saturday. So uh, it's, a, it's a race to the bottom, boys. Let's see how it goes. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. got a great crew tonight oliver camacho oh, tobias wright I ashley hardgrave and I myself <laughs> george cedarquist so gentlemen where are you going to start well i mean we just start from the from from the macro and go down to the micro i yeah. guess well first so to explain to our listeners uh, opera philadelphia and the philadelphia tourism board uh invited us to be their guests and yeah. it was kind of the dream for opera box score for somebody to actually give us credit for our love and our passion yeah. and, and let us just go well, see well the city of philadelphia really needed a bump from us you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so so we got the opportunity oliver and i um were available we told weston and matt and george and ashley to kick rocks and that we were going um and so, sounds right yeah so we yeah. went out um 
it was honestly everything that I could have wanted to be. It was phenomenal. And I've long, you guys know on this show, been like, oh, Philadelphia figured it out. They made a festival. It's the United States. People are going to come from all over. You're going to have a jam-packed weekend. And it was all that and then more. So that's kind of what just happened that we're getting back for. Oliver's still hungover and smells like booze. It was such a lovely experience. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Boston Early Music Festival, which is like a week long. And there's a gajillion things to do every day. Uh, this festival feels very much like you could see something you know two things a day like yeah. they had recital series uh saturday morning there was uh two performances on sunday so you could do a matinee and a, a evening show uh friday night we arrived we saw mm -hmm. um love for three oranges we saw love of three oranges a prokofiev piece that and like it was so fun for it so the opening night of their festival and mm -hmm. i guess at the uh the academy the orchestra this and like right off the bat there was already a buzz and a vibe and like right off the bat it was like drum roll and uh, the audience shot up out of their seats and we all sang the national anthem oliver got a standing ovation from the people <laughs> around us and then but it was wall to wall action and it was the perfect way to start the weekend i mean they kicked our ass with an awesome show yeah well also i mean they they had shown the lava wham in the park and in, in the mall earlier and they had done one performance of dennis and katya and Thumb and semily before yep. we got there but it did feel like love of three oranges opening night was like the big weekend when they expected everybody to arrive mm -hmm. um media and opera box score people they were expecting us you know they and were. uh they you know the this there's multiple venues that the festival takes place in but this is like the big, beautiful opera house. It's called the Academy of the Music. Academy, yeah. And uh, European style, straight up, uh, proscenium. I mean, it was beautiful. Yeah, and this show is has so many costumes and uh, supernumeraries who are clowns and acrobats, and the chorus was just out insane. Mm -hmm. They were so good, so active uh, in the show. So many light cues, so many technical things. Costumes were incredible in the show. <laughs> and it's an opera that like we don't get to hear that much, but it's sort of insane and wonderful. And well, and the cool part is it set the bar so high at an artistic level because everyone involved with that had to commit. There's yeah. no, you can't really, now that I've seen The Love of Three Oranges, and Lord knows I probably won't ever have yeah. the opportunity to see it again. If you do that kind of show, you have to have everyone kind of commit to the insanity of the 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 plot, I guess. Right, yeah. Um, and it worked. It was really cool. I that mean, it's like never done. Yeah. No. But I, I just want to say before I forget that, like, the, we arrived there and the staff was so on point, the opera Philadelphia staff, and they had, like, set up this gigantic table for us to be greeted with. And they had all this beautiful collateral. They had in, in, in one of the levels of the opera house their O level. Yeah. Um, which was set up as kind of like a speakeasy. Yeah. And they we activated a, a, a space that's normally not used by the Academy. Uh, for like step and repeat. We took some loving photos with each other. Yeah, spin the wheel and win a prize, have a special cocktail designed oh. around the opera. And as I was saying, like their print collateral is so handsome, really, really beautiful materials, really wonderful to just like touch and read. And it just feels very luxurious. And they give out buttons at each show. And so if you go to all the shows, you collect all the buttons and you feel like you're part of it. Yeah. Your exactly. badge of honor. So the other show um, that we saw the next day was Semily. Well, that night. That oh, then we well yeah. W then we went to the like we did after hours double header. Okay. <laughs> we yeah, went we went to an after hours. Um, it's uh, marketed as late night snacks, and it was so cool because you know you go from the Academy, which is gorgeous European style opera house, just like you would think, you know, with red velvet. Um, and then we hop into an Uber and go to late night snacks where we get dropped off in an alley. And I thought, certainly this was it for me. 
Um, <laughs> and then we walked down and you go into, it was like a warehouse venue, super casual, um, a party atmosphere. There was drag queens, Anthony Roth Casanzo uh, treated he's us to a cabaret for an entire hour. He's saying Gershwin and Mozart and um, music from The Music Man and Roy Orbison. <laughs> and it was hilarious. I had only one what is called a citywide, mm -hmm. which is the version, Philadelphia's version of the Chicago handshake. You know, Chicago handshakes, a PBR or a hams, mm -hmm. and then a shot of Malort, Jepson's right. Malort. Yikes. And a, uh, a citywide, which I only had one of, I want to reiterate, only one, was a PBR and then a shot of whiskey. You know, we should uh, take a moment to listen to some testimonials. Yes. How it felt. I'll quit while we were, yeah, let's, let's hear this. So uh, every time we went to a show, it would end or we'd hit halftime slash intermission and Oliver would... Make Shove a microphone <laughs> in somebody's face. <laughs> He'd be like, hey, we're on a show. Will you be on it? <laughs> and most of you, everyone agreed. Get that content. Good job. So are you going to see Let Me Die? Yes. Yeah. Okay. See that tomorrow. And Semily? Saw that last night. Okay. Now, so about, Excuse me. About Semily, there was a lot of ballet dancing. Yes. Right? And I thought one thing, there was too much ballet Too dancing. much dancing. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, uh, we'll uh, tell uh, the director uh, when we interview him tomorrow. <laughs> well, 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 yes. And, and I like to say, you know, it, it, normally we have a Greek chorus sometimes which yeah. tells what's going on. Now, yes. directors are substituting the Greek chorus for ballet. Okay. And these like Take somebody like Nana and the Trap Bowl or Michael Bowling. You wouldn't get a ballet dancer dancing around him or her while they're <laughs> yes. singing. I guarantee yes. you that would never yes. be put up. But it's sometimes it's overdone. They have a great idea with the ballet, yes. but it's too much. But you would, wouldn't you say that Baroque music lends itself more to dancing more yeah. than Wagner yeah. does? Well, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It needs something. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Keep you awake. Yeah, the the yeah. movement. Yeah. Those odd infinitum de couples. You know, yes. they go back to the beginning, go back yes. to the beginning. And the ballet dancing does relieve. There's so much boredom. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> Spoken like two opera fans. <laughs> so you're both students. Yeah. This is, and you had a promotion to go see your first opera. What were your expectations going in? <laughs> did you did you do any research before you came? Um, just a little bit because actually one of the directors at our university was in the play, so okay. she okay. gave us some info, but we didn't have like too much information. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So what so, were you expecting? Honestly, you go. Okay. Yeah. This is not what I was expecting at all. I'm yeah. not gonna lie. I mean, I, I you know I've seen operas in on TV and you yeah. know like the stereotypical opera, but this is yeah. more like a good introduction to an opera. You know what I mean? It's more yeah. friendly, more fun. It's just very fun to watch. You know. I mean, name Andrew. And your first name? Sarah. Great. So, uh, is this your first time at the opera? Second time. Second time. What did you see before this? Don Giovanni at Perlman Theater uh, in Kimmel Center last year. Okay, so was it Opera Philadelphia production? Opera Philadelphia. Okay, so this is your second time. Second so time. you're repeat customers. That's exactly what you want. <laughs> you're the dream! <laughs> <laughs> so what did you think of this show? I loved it. It was fantastic. I Wasn't it the fun? costumes. Yeah. It's very hilarious. Energy, right? Yeah. So uh, do you feel like, amazing job! <laughs> That's the director walking by. <laughs> um, do you feel like this is something now that will become part of your regular, like, you know, cultural diet? I mean, I think it has already. Yeah. It's my second time coming back. Um, I think I'm going to come see Madame Butterfly. Yeah. Uh, 
So, so what is your name? I'm Andrew. Andrew. Andrew, how many events have you been to for the French Festival? This is my first one. Your first one. Did yeah. you know about O Festival before tonight? Uh, I have some family actually who are involved in the production of it. Okay. So, so I'm very excited to. Are you an opera type of guy? I'm open to being an opera type okay. of guy. Do you think that one day you'll decide to become an opera sexual? You know, I'm not going to discount any possibilities. <laughs> okay, you're on the spectrum. I'm on perhaps. the spectrum of opera sexuality. Okay, yeah. very good. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, can I just, just, just for statistics, how old are you? You look like you're like 18. How old do you think you know, I am? I think you're 30. I'm so. 31. Good oh, 30. guess. Okay. <laughs> very good guess. It's the yeah. gray, isn't it? Yeah, you've got the face of a cherub, but you've got, <laughs> got the, you the hair of a middle-aged man. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. All right. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, so I've been uh, going to the opera for many years before we had a festival in Philly. Okay. And I remember going to maybe three or four shows a year. Okay. And then when they started the festival, I was told we're going to have five shows in a month. Yeah. So I had to sign up. It's a great problem. You're like 22? I, that's so kind of you. Yeah. I'm in my 30s now. Really? But those kinds of moments yeah. make, my, make my day. <laughs> you, well, you have beautiful skin. Thank uh, you. Yeah. Thank I'm, you. I'm 24. Yeah, you're 24? Okay. <laughs> Whatnot, so. I would say about, I'd like to say about Opera Philadelphia mm -hmm. that they do a spectacular job. By the way, it's fun to watch the panel go down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they do a, just, they make opera not stuffy. Uh -huh. Everything about the vibe in the theater, yeah. they always staff around, yeah. they say hello. Yeah. There's just a quality of this is about joy. Yeah. And and keep it youthful. It's the youngest audience in the city. Uh -huh. Yeah, because you know? we go to lots of different classes. We go to a music. lot of chamber music. Yeah. And, and this is where the kids come out. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> and, and I think there's a lot to do with, number one, what they choose to perform mm -hmm. and the fact that they'll do new repertoire. They'll take a lot of risk. Mm -hmm. um, they nurture young composers. Oh, my God, they're yeah. wonderful. You know, Missy yeah. Mazzoli was a composer in yeah. residence. That's how Breaking the Waves got, right. got birthed. Um, and now um, Denise and Katya, which we haven't heard yet. Yeah. Um, but I just, it brings a kind of vibrancy, I think, to Philadelphia and a kind of joy of music making that sometimes, I think Nese Saga has tried to do that as well with mm -hmm. the orchestra. But, oh, Philadelphia is really singular. Okay. You know, it's just not, you know, the lyric opera is great. There are a lot of great opera companies, yeah. but this one has a different vibe, and I okay. think it's wonderful. No, I do too. I'm really enjoying myself. Good. Opera so, Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM doing a huge recap of the Festival 019 at Opera Philadelphia. Oliver Camacho and Tobias right were there in person. Ashley Hardgrave yeah. and yours, yours truly, George Cedarquist, just kind of tagging really quickly, along. Really quickly, thank at this you point. to Kathy, Dick, Dustin Bestay, uh, Andrew. Peggy and Mark and and, and anyone else that, and Raheem, yes. that Oliver flirted and, with. As I'm listening to that supercut, I'm realizing, God, I flirted with all the guys. Everyone, <laughs> you should have seen us at coffee shops. He got up there. He's like, you know why this line was so long? It's because your skin's so beautiful. <laughs> You're the only one, Oliver, in this room that is surprised by that behavior. I just want to lay that out. <laughs> I guess uh, opera festivals make me very, you know, happy to be happy. alive and yeah, that's and what we'll alert say. to happy. beauty. You know, we're going to talk really quickly about the other things we saw. Semily with Gary Weedo conducting, who's a friend of the show. Uh, Amanda Forsythe, Daniela Mack, Alex Schrader, a stellar cast, uh, really fun production. We actually got an interview with James Dara, uh, Dara, yeah. uh, which we'll get to listen to next week. Who I think might be a genius. Yeah. I mean, seriously. It's an amazing production. Uh, then we saw at the Fringe Arts venue, which is 
furthest away, you have to like get in an Uber to go catch that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of their very off the beaten track show called Let Me Die. A uh, really fun concept piece. Yeah, you can read the reviews about that. Um, but I enjoyed that. And you know what? That drove home for me the, the Let Me Die um, in conjunction with you know, being at the Academy and then going to see the late night snacks and then let me die. And then Semily, I, I really thought that the festival did a fantastic job of showing off different parts of the city and mm-hmm. especially different venues. And what was really cool about the different venues, you can do an opera in a different venue just to do it. But I really thought that every opera that they did was done in the right venue. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like Semily was done in the right venue. It was intimate. It was small. It was acoustically, acoustically, for yeah. That music, yeah. Um, Love of Three Oranges was bombastic and big, and in a big, beautiful space, so that fit. And then, like the Let Me Die was in this warehouse underneath like a, a bridge, box, like, uh, <laughs> like with, and it was dimly lit with faces on the wall. And then they did a whole thing about death. Yeah. You know what I mean? So um, we're gonna listen to uh, our conversation. Don't laugh at me, George. With uh, Sarah Williams, <laughs> uh, who is their new works administrator, and. She has a lot to do with the festival, you know, organizing and putting putting together the new commissions, which Opera Philadelphia is becoming known for. Yeah, no, you're, it's New Works administrator. I mean, it's okay. basically there's, so there's there's nothing there's no uh, there's no job and career for this. I mean, there's okay. n- there's no other job description in any other opera company that has this. There's yeah. like there's come some sort of producery roles, but um, so it's basically the the, the equivalent of like artistic administrator. Um, but I oversee our new work, so that's everything from commissioning, developing, exploring, and getting everything to the main stage, and then I also oversee our composer in residence program, so it's all of that stuff. So is there a composer residence that's in residence every year? So up until this past year, uh, since 2011, the Mellon Foundation funded a composer in residence program that we had one person uh, for three years, so we had three at a time at various stages of their three-year residency, Um, and then the grant funding uh, ended in June, and so we're trying to figure out what we want to do with the next gestation. But the other side of our new works practice, what you see on the main stages of our commissions, has exploded so much too, being able to balance kind of both the new works and the commissions and with the composer residence program. So, and also a lot of our learning from those explorations and those programs, we're going to kind of take our learning and then reinvigorate, I think, what the composer residence program's next gestation is going to be. So, we're still talking about that and figuring that out. So, how involved are you with uh, selecting? you know composers and you know production designers etc yeah very so i would say in terms of it depends on it in terms of production that varies um it depends on the piece and how integral the director is in the development and creation process we don't have one way that we find what we're going to commission so um it could be david devan myself david levy michael eberhard carado robardis goes out and sees something hears something talks to somebody comes back and we as a team kind of talk about it I definitely am the person that has my ear to the ground on who's out there creating and who kind of we may be interested in at a certain point of commissioning, having conversations with them. We also get a lot of solicitations because there are so many amazing, creative, talented artists that are out there um, creating with not uh, commission opportunities. Um, So I really try to engage in any way that I can and access points for them as well. We can only do so much, Mm -hmm. but there's not one way that we find what they are. So, but I am the person that's kind of on the ground the most. I listen to all of the materials. I, you know, get to know all of these people um, very, very well. I come back and talk to the team about that. I advise on where I think and what we should do and why and all of that kind of stuff. And then that leads us to the commission and it just kind of um, lives with me then after that point for the most part. And how do you feel that the festival has been building the brand of the company over the past, what, three years, not yeah. three plus years? Yeah. Like, I mean, I've been interviewing audience members and uh, I've been really delighted to find 
a wide variety of people in the audience, uh, age spectrum, mm -hmm. uh, but even like what I think of as like classic, you know, opera slash classical music concert going folk, I've talked to them and they're very excited about new music. I mean, I think uh, the, the one thing I saw all the time is that it's it's not. I mean, it's it's a massive credit to David Devane, general director. I mean that he is really fearless in that. I think it's easy for me to say because you know I live in the creative art artistic realm of just like endless possibilities as a singer and in my capacity. Now I want to push the form and push whatever we can as much as possible. That doesn't mean at a disconnect. That's to do. That's to create really interesting works that are representative of the world that we actually live into that could exist in the canon for the future. Um, and I think having a general director that understands that and is willing to fight for it on more of the corporate end in terms of fundraising and audience engagement and all of that other stuff you have to answer to and board level and the typical audiences that we know that we find in this medium, it's not easy. Um, so, you know, I will go and ha have an idea and present it to him and uh, you imagine any other company would be like, uh, and David, it's not even crazy enough. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's really, it's a luxury. Okay. This company and how we kind of think and work on things. But I also think there's a big... Um, element of educating the audience, that it takes time. The same way that fundraising takes time. You know, someone's not just going to write a massive amount of money and a check to you. You know, we, it, you develop relationships, and I think that's the core of what the company is about, not only from the artistic spectrum and how we work with people and how we engage with each other yeah. here, but how we want to engage in philanthropy and with our audience, and we all, we all are growing and learning and developing together, and that's the big kind of community aspect part of it that is necessary. Right. Well, I mean, I'm just trying to figure out where you draw the line because then you have composers like Kevin Putz who, uh, and Mark Campbell, who the librettist who did Elizabeth Creek. Yeah. And that opera is so accessible because, um, you know, the subject matter and, and some of the musical language is very easy for, you know, opera audiences mm -hmm. to grasp, to access. Yeah. Um, so I, but then are you looking to other shows in the future that like, okay, well, now we need to really push the envelope more, you know, musically, sonically. Yeah, I don't, so. I don't think of it that way. I would say that I, if anyone that knows of our new works and has kind of seen it or is getting to know it, not one of them looks like the next. Okay. And I think the, the thing about the festival is all about the future of opera in particular. Okay. So not only um, are they often maybe reimagined productions or operas that, like Love of Three Oranges, it's probably mm. the only time many of us are ever going to see it. It's just not done that often. Yeah. Right? but also a new work like Denise and Katya that is engaging in an aspect of subject matter and um, exploration of storyline and abstractness that you don't often see in opera too. So meaning that I don't think it's about like, let's figure out a way to thematically make sure we even out things enough that we are finding things interesting enough. It's like, where are the interesting artists? What do they have to say? What are they doing? How are they fighting for the form? How are they driving the form? What inspires them? Because if it inspires them, we as an audience are going to be inspired then, rather than the company going to all of these people and maybe dictating more of what it should be. I think that's where often we feel a disconnect in this medium. So I think it's more about getting out there and doing the harder work which is meeting with people and talking with people and being and what are they interested in t talking about? What are they also frust frustrated by the medium and wanting to kind of explore more, not having an opportunity to do so? And th so that's where you get breaking the ways. We shall not be moved. Elizabeth Cree, Denise, and Katya. Like it's 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 vast and different, and it, as it should be. If that makes sense. It does. It does. I'm just I'm I'm trying to imagine what those conversations look like and how do you actually get feedback from the audience like what are the, the street like the I mean we do yeah I mean we do we well first of all we're 
I always try to talk to people after a new work. Like I find I'm always in a lobby, like asking people what their immediate reactions are. We do talkbacks after the performances. We do a ton of data research, and which our marketing department has kind of ex- exploded in terms of kind of ma- doing a lot of group surveys and stuff and trying to figure out what that is because I think. We are known for, at this point, very much our new works as well, and we're known for being a, probably a bit more progressive and propulsive in what our new works are, not only in terms of creative artists. We, we really try to also engage creative artists that um, you may have not heard of before or not know yet, rather than a lot of times you find, you hear about a, a lot of the same people writing and creating opera, right? which is not a bad thing, but I'm also very interested in having my ear to the ground and creating different platforms and opportunities for people that may not have it either. So I want those voices. Like We need those voices, and that's also what helps educate us and get us moving ahead. So I don't think it's, it's, it's that kind of engagement with the audience and dialoguing about that and holding panels and trying to do whatever we can to find out what that is. Also, I just think it takes time. Yeah. I think we develop a trusting relationship the more that like we are consistent in what we're also talking about. We're engaging with them and listening too, and we develop this relationship together, like real life. Yeah, you know what I mean. But also, like the festival gives you a chance to take a gamble on something too, because it's well, it's still a big investment. But yep. you're Huge getting investment. you're getting people to come to Philadelphia sensibly, and they're gonna try something they might maybe not would not have tried, because they're here. And they love opera, and you know, there's only so many times you can climb up the rocky steps, you know. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. exactly. Yeah. There is. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a great like you know, it's 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 a festival like like of the community and of yeah. Philadelphia. So to your point earlier about um, it representing different venues in the yeah. city, right? Like that's intentional. So. Mm-hmm. Some companies may say, like, the downside, we don't have our own opera house. So there's a downside in that, right, that you don't have your own space that you can have, inhabit all the time. The upside is incredible accessibility and opportunity in other ways. You can create, like you said, works for these unique spaces and to exist beyond that, that caters so uniquely to something that's not typically in, in, in the standard space in opera house. We've tripped out warehouses. We're at the Perlman, we're at the Perlman Theater often. The Chamber Museum. We've also gone to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the Barnes Foundation. You know, we're the Academy of Music. We're at the Wilma Theater across the street. You know what I mean? It creates different, interesting artistic standpoints for artists and ourselves as a company too, right? So we are of the city of Philadelphia, of the community, but then also and have grown into this very large international company that we're working with artists like Daniela and beyond that sing and perform all over the world, so that people want to come into Philadelphia and access to but also then they get to see this amazing city as you said earlier because it is it's a fantastic city that often doesn't get its own like ownership in that way you know out of all the major metropolitan cities it usually falls lower on the level for various reasons that we get into another time but I think that's why it's also a really exciting time for the city and I'm honored to have that we do this here in Philadelphia Oliver Camacho going inside the huddle so Daniela Mack will join us for the second half of this. Stick around on Opera Box Score on 89.3 WNUR-FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Support for Opera Box Score is provided by Opera Philadelphia's Festival 019, featuring 12 days, mostly over, of zesty comedy, rare classics, and new music at venues across the city. You could go to Vernick and have a cocktail there. You could go to the Museum of Art. You could go see where they wrote the Declaration of Independence because, oh my God, they did that in Philadelphia. You can go to Rittenhouse Square, and everything is there. All the cute little restaurants, the park, the jugglers. And if you go to Vernick, which is not at Rittenhouse Square, you ask for Britain. 
Britain. Oh, Britain. the greatest server of all time. She was such a delight. And oh. she turned out to be from Chicago. She was from Chicago and the greatest Miami. server of all time. Performances include the world her. premiere of, De- <laughs> of Denise and Katya by Philip Venables and Ted Huffman, an exploration of the dark side of social media based on a true story about teens who live-streamed their tragic deaths. Denise and Katya stars uh, Sienna Lichtmiller, amazing, and an adorable pocket-sized baritone named Theo Hoffman. Oliver once told me he wanted to stream his death but I told him he couldn't, so I saved him from himself. This happened what? in our. This happened. Am I, this, did it? Did this not happen in our hotel room in Philadelphia? Lies. <laughs> um, there's Three also Prokofiev's rarely seen comedy, The Love of Three Oranges. Now that should not be rarely seen because it's so no. funny. Worth but, it to be seen, but not rarely. It's very expensive to put it on. Well, there's a. Sh- Is yeah. it because of all of the oranges? It's not actually three oranges. There's like three thousand oranges. Well, every, is that for every show, they, yeah. need, they need three oranges. And if you think how many times you can put on the show, that's like that could be like twelve oranges. There's yeah. a produce shortage. Yeah. You know, times is hard. Handel Semele and Joseph Keckler's Let Me Die, Please. which asks why <laughs> opera has such a morbid obsession with death. Festival 019 going on now through September 29th in the city of brotherly love. Visit Philly, hashtag, hashtag dot visit com. Philly. Thank visit. you, Arturo, at Visit Philly. Tickets at operafilla.org. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight on Opera Box Score. It's on WNUR 89.3 FM in HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. George Cedarquist hosting the show tonight, along with Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, and Ashley Hardgrave. So uh, Daniela Mack also was in the room with us uh, while I was interviewing Sarah Williams. It just so happened they both were free at the same time. So in this part of the interview, we'll, we'll add Daniela Mack to the conversation. There's something to be said about working with a team of people who encourage exploration in the room um, and invite uh, that exploration without judgment. And I think this company certainly makes sure that they put teams together that uh, bring that kind of an environment to fruition. So being in there and having the permission to be as vulnerable as I can, as I know, for example, who Mm -hmm. is the scorned, um, the... The sad one, yeah. I suppose. The um, leftover sister. Yeah, the leftover. <laughs> not quite best, second best. Um, the, it, takes, uh, it takes a level of comfort to be able to just be absolutely as vulnerable as I can in that. And then to turn around in the next scene and put on this air of invincibility. Put on a and, wig. And put on a different wig yeah, every two seconds. Um, and that just be able way. to transform yeah. on a dime because the roles require it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think, if you had asked me five years ago, I, I don't know if I would have been able to pull it off. Fruitful career. So this show was the first time I've ever gotten to see you really up close and mm-hmm. to watch... Because the space in the Kimmel Center, what's it called again? The, the, Pearl, the, Pearl, the Pearlman Theater mm-hmm. is very intimate. It's beautiful. Um, so I was really able to like watch a lot of mm-hmm. what you were doing and see your expressions. And mm-hmm. I don't know if this is something you bring to all of your work, but uh, you seem to have a lot of like authentic grief 
and anger in this show. Yes. And you have some scenes with um, Alex Schrader. Who? Just kidding. <laughs> Never heard of him. <laughs> Where there is, like, I don't want to, like, there's just something coming off the stage that mm. feels like this is really intense and it feels private almost, mm. like I shouldn't be watching this, you know? Because that's something you find in all of your work or is it something you can do only with him? That's a really great, a question. great question. I'm glad that that comes oh, off of the stage, like, like you said. <laughs> I, I, I love to hear that and love to know that. There is something to be said for the level of comfort that I have with, for those who might not know, my husband. Okay. <laughs> That's who we're talking about. Um, you know, there's, there's no wall, um, which I think... You know, if you're performing with a good friend or with a colleague that you've known for a long time, you have a level of comfort. But I, we've been together now for 12 years. He's seen me at my highest and my lowest, everything in between. So there's no reason to hide any sort of emotion. There's no danger in going all the way to the, that edge with him. Um, and we're... You know, we're always in the moment together, and we're really lucky, I think, to be able to perform together as much as we do because that kind of intimacy that is also very public in this weird mm-hmm. way um, takes trust, and mm-hmm. we definitely have that. So, Can you talk about your relationship with um, the city of Philadelphia mm. and Opera Philadelphia and yeah. you know, the idea of you being part of the Opera Philadelphia mm-hmm. family has been invoked already? It so. has been invoked, and I couldn't agree more. And I think every one of my colleagues that I've discussed this with mm-hmm. feels very much the same way, especially those that I've worked with Corrado, the mm-hmm. music director. Um, he and everybody who works alongside him really make a point of making people feel welcome here. And um, they're very interested as a company, I mean, I won't really speak for you guys, mm-hmm. but in uh, seeing the growth and development of the singers that they believe in Mm -hmm. Um, and so the opportunities that they give us reflect that uh, sense very much I mean to bring it together then so Opera Philadelphia is uh, intent on nurturing new voices and new Mm -hmm. talent what happens when Daniela Mack is too big for Opera Philadelphia. Mm-mm. No, I think I, I mean that. It's a really interesting question, actually. It's a really interesting. Like, there's a part of me that wants to say I feel like there's a bit of the tide turning in the industry in that way. I think a different era that was very that was very true. There was like a hierarchy of system of maybe where you saw yourself grow in a career, and then you were maybe beyond a certain space. Yeah. I'm not sure. You disagree. Speak up if you disagree. But I'm not sure if we're ushering in the same type of era of careers anymore in that way. Um, I think the one thing about our company that artists across the board, whether singers, creative artists, directors, scenic designers, lighting designers, Mm -hmm. etc., are interested in coming here for is that there's an artistic intention and practice that you may not get in other places in the same way. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, the industry was so oversaturated maybe by something different for so long that this is very appealing for this kind of next gestation of artists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. may- maybe you're the type of artist that always wants to do like interesting Well, that's again. exactly what I was going to say. We don't always get afforded the opportunity to, um, uh, to be ourselves so much in the rehearsal space mm-hmm. to contribute in this very specific way to the, the, the overall product that you see. Mm-hmm. Um, and I absolutely would prefer to do an interesting project with a great group of people than perhaps, you know, a, a, a high-profile 
show where I just have to kind of plug myself into what's already been preconceived and yeah. I don't get to be as creative perhaps as I would be at a, at a place like Philadelphia. So there's like this idea that there are like A houses and B houses mm -hmm. like based on budget. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. Mm -hmm. yeah, absolutely. But are we seeing now, because you maybe suggested this, that we're beginning to erase those models, but we have to erase those models because the A houses are becoming unsustainable. Yes. And they have to start thinking about how to diversify. And you, it's hard to diversify when you have a space that holds 4,000 people. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it makes me think of so many things. I think once, I think, one, I think that whole, like, level A, B, C, D company thing or level one, two, three, when before that held something differently and I don't think people realized that was an operating budget yeah. system. There was a hierarchy that was then we kind of uh, fell into and then maybe liked a little bit too much about what that meant in terms of status and then who could and could not come and who could and could not yeah, perform and play yeah, there and yeah. who you had to, that whole game. I think there's, I think because that system is being pushed out because people are also fighting the industry is fighting itself in many other ways too which then is a rollout from that and it's also then a reaction of like what audiences and the way that we consume now right so we created the festival because in reaction to how we as human beings consume in the era that we are we are a binge watching society now right which is why david devan did a lot of the research that he did which led us to even move our which previous was like a stagione season we went went in rep in a festival and then we go to stagione in the rest of the year um to satisfy various audiences and what that looks like so then that plays into also where do people what kind of what kind of artists are they wanting to see what kind of artists are what kind of shows are they wanting to see what kind of topics what all of that stuff is then just play from there do you know what I mean yeah. what we're satisfied by what we want to talk about what we want to talk about after we leave the theater what we're inspired right. by has then of effect changed so oftentimes this medium industry is maybe a little slower than some other artistic forms yeah. which we understand why because it's also one of the oldest art forms 400 plus years old comes with a lot of history and a lot of respect for what that is too right but we also have to not necessarily be holden by that history but also build upon it and move forward and i think there are various ways that it's pushing outside of that and to your point yes i think the houses in particular are but also it's really we're seeing more and more new works happen it's really really expensive to do a new work at a level a massive like 3000 seat house yeah it's really hard to do right so yeah you have to look at but audiences like it. We, they're wanting new work. They're wanting different type of art, artistry and creativity. So how are we, as companies, it's our responsibility to engage with our audiences. We want to support and move the form forward. How do we do that? Yes, we have to comfort conversations about different spaces and why and how it serves the form. I feel like you were on the verge of saying something I was hoping you would say, <laughs> um, how you compare... Um, this to the television model of HBO. Totally. Uh, yeah, could, yeah could absolutely. Could you elaborate on that? Because it was such a good, I've read it somewhere. Yeah, I, I mean, so, so one of the, exactly, I mean, it was, so David says, David Devan says this all the time that like, you know, we are kind of, we are the HBO, we are the HBO of opera. Right, in terms of HBO. And More boobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank have, you, Daniela. You're welcome. Yeah. Language, nudity, you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> but like HBO at its time, we, yeah. we forget maybe even our generations because it was even like while we were all like quite young, but like HBO was really revolutionary in its time of programming, right, and, and how you watch it and, and how often you could have access to something. I think David's analogy stands stands true. It's like he, that, which is why in this terms of moving into 
the festival form, format in a binge-watching capacity, we've also, in the terms of opera world, are, are many in many aspects like the HBO of opera, maybe a little head in different ways, but also having conversations and data and research of reasons why we're doing that and when you engage in our audiences in different ways, react to the actual consumer model in the world that we're actually living in, right? Rather than sticking with something just because we're a little scared to move beyond it. There's a fearlessness that has to happen, not only in the, in the company, the industry, um, the way it operates, the internal people that are working in it, but then also the, the forefront of the creativity and artistry. It has to be all one connected and in the same. <laughs> and I would be remiss if I did not ask one more question about um, your special situation um, being special married to situation? an opera singer oh. who, also, who also has like a, a pretty amazing career and having a family, like mm. having a child and a child who's at a really important age where you have to give a lot of attention. And um, yeah, and so I just, I'm trying to figure out like how c can you talk to those singers out there listening who can't imagine what it'd be like. Yes, I get this question all the time and I, I will happily give you my answer. I don't know if it's the right answer for everybody, yeah. but for us, ever since we met, our number one priority has been to remain as a unit and to be together as much as possible because otherwise there's not really a point in, in having a partnership. Um, and now that we have a daughter who's four, um, every spare ounce of energy and time goes as it should uh, to her. And she's, she's our primary um, concern in all ways, right? And so um, it's, it takes a lot of work. It takes dedication. It takes energy reserves that beyond what we knew we had. Um, but for us, staying together and traveling together as much as we can, um, if that means alternating gigs, uh, one with the other, so that we can be together, we are um, more than happy to do that. And uh, if we can work together, as we are in Semily, uh, we happily take those gigs over others. Um, and it's just like a big puzzle. Because you end up saving money on childcare. <laughs> well, you would think that, actually. If we're both working at the same time, oh, we yeah, definitely yeah. have yeah. to have someone watch our daughter. Um, but we couldn't do it without the help of our family. Mm. Um, have they moved to South Bend, too? Or? They have not. Okay. But we are lucky in that they are able to travel with us okay. often. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't have a great answer for it. But... Definitely making the family the number one priority if that means, you know, not accepting one gig over another or, or making a point to not be away from home for yeah. extended periods of time. Um, it's a sacrifice that needs to be made and happily is. We, both of us actually, I think our careers have centered primarily around opera, um, but we try to do as much concert work as we can. Um, I think you know, just the way the stars align, we still do quite a bit of opera, primarily opera. But we're both happy to take shorter engagements because that means more time spent at home mm -hmm. and less, usually less preparation. Um, so, yes, we, we, we try to have a healthy mix of opera and concert if we can. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you very much for doing this interview on Opera Box. Thank Boxcar. you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, Clash of the Titans at the Met and New York City Opera. It's up next, only on Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. 
More right after this. Listed as a must-listen podcast for opera by Playbill. Thanks, somebody, guys. Somebody said that? <laughs> they did. Okay. I know. Too bad we can't link to that review uh, in uh, a podcast. But, you know, <laughs> go to Playbill, search Opera Box Score. Week after week, Opera Box Score is expanding its reach, discussing news of the business, talking to opera's most important players, and infotaining the newcomers and longtime fans alike. Oh, I'm infotaining. That is for sure. <laughs> you are the That's queen how I describe myself yes. and you as well. If you are new to the podcast, look back in our archives to find interviews with the likes of genre-defying countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo. He follows us on the Twitters. In-demand in opera librettist Mark Campbell. He's written the libretto to everything that's come out in the past like everything. five years. Mm. And Richard Tucker Award winner Eileen Perez. My Instagram girlfriend. Oh, that's Thanks, sweet. Eileen's publicist. You can also use the podcast as the crib sheet and impress your friends with opera facts from segments like the OBS Hall of Fame where we take a deep dive into the works and artists you need to know. Or, if you are thirsty for blood in a way that only opera can satisfy, check out our TKO segments where two singers take off their tiaras and put on the gloves for a supremacy in some of the most difficult arias in the repertoire. Actually, I don't think you've been here for a TKO segment yet, but I have not lost everyone that I've done. Challenge accepted. I I think I've won one. (laughs) Access the complete archives by adding Opera Box Score to your podcast favorites. So this is the thing. Like, if you want to see everything we've done, you have to go to the Stitcher or to the iTunes podcast, and you have to just say, I like this podcast. I want it in my ear holes. It's, you know? a, it's a thumb tap, kids. Yeah. Can you tap your thumb? And I think you, you can. can scroll you just back go to and that see, Stitcher machine. Yeah, and you can scroll back and see all the shows that we've done, and then you'll be happy. And you can, like, have endless hours of listening, especially now that school's back in session. you got to tune out your teacher while you're in lecture, you know. Mm-hmm. Or while you're waiting in line to pick up the kids yeah. at whatever elementary school or they're at. Or if you're trying to get a master's degree in opera, take my advice and don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> or scroll through the archive box by clicking on the Future and Past Shows tab at operaboxscore.com. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. It's opening night of the 2019-2020 season at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. But on Wednesday evening, Placido Domingo, the opera megastar who's recently been accused of sexual misconduct by 20 women, is scheduled to start a run of performances of Verdi's Macbeth, Trouble Brewing There. Last week, the American Guild of Musical Artists, the union that represents choristers and stage managers, quote, filed an unfair labor practice charge with the National Labor Relations Board against New York City Opera. Over the last several months, AGMA has encountered a number of issues in our dealings with NICO, including numerous violations of the collective bargaining agreement, end quote. Board of directors from the L.A. Philharmonic Association elected Thomas L. Beckman to succeed. Jay Rasulo as chair of the board at its annual meeting last week. More than 60 years after Marian Anderson broke the color barrier at the Metropolitan Opera, black singers still face unique obstacles in building their careers within the industry. That's according to an article on WFMT.com. Quote, we've made some strides, but not a whole lot, said Naomi Andre, a professor at the University of Michigan and author of the book Black Opera. The Met will stage its first opera by a black composer as the company's making plans to bring Terrence Blanchard's Fire Shut Up in My Bones to New York. An article in Vanity Fair magazine has proclaimed that, quote, opera is having a woke renaissance. Exit stage right, Washington Post music critic Ann Majette, who tweeted that, quote, I've been trying not to comment until the internal memo goes out. 
but since the news has gotten out today, yes, I'm resigning from the Washington Post as of November 22nd to work on my book, be at home at night for my son, and see what the next chapter holds. And on this day, we celebrate the birthdays of baritone William Schimmel, born in 1952, tenor Sandra Konya in 1923, soprano Yarmila Novotna, that was in 1907, soprano Stella Roman in 1904, and it was the first performance of Gluck's opera Armide, in 1777, that is your two-minute drill. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. So I got this email from being an AGMA member that they are taking NICO to task. Uh, although they, in this email, they said, quote, AGMA fully supports the mission of the New York City Popper and roots for the success of this organization, where so many of their members have performed. They're also taking whatever contractual and legal steps are necessary to enforce the collective bargaining agreement. Uh, the details are a little bit sketchy right now. I don't want to have any sort of conjecture, but um, it's going to come to blows. Well, we were talking to Frank Luzzi. Can you kind of sort of summarize how that sort of corresponds with the Antonio Brown thing? Well, I mean, this oh, is... No, that's that's in relation to the Domingo. Oh, that's so right. So yeah. y- that's that's the issue where... You're, and I actually agree with Frank here because... Uh, could you explain this? I, I sure, set sure. that up sort so of really badly. So opera superstar Domingo, right? Yes. Who, because of his immense talent and the clout that he carries, seems to be able to work uh, in and amongst and around the allegations that are being levied against him, right? And... Antonio Brown is a superstar NFL player, one of the best players over the last decade, maybe a Hall of Famer. And over the last three years, he's just burned every single bridge that he could um, just by virtue of essentially behind closed doors being a horrible person and yet still being able to produce. And people have allowed that to take place. And I think what's happening, and we saw this with Antonio Brown, he was picked up by the Patriots and then cut. Um, once allegations started coming out, you know, that he had he owed back taxes of hundreds of thousands of dollars, wasn't paying people, yada, yada, yada. And then finally somebody said enough. Well, this NPR article um, has several anonymous sources from within the Met who've worked there for decades who have said that it feels like they've been kind of spat on by the leadership to allow Domingo to continue to have his presence there. And really, I kind of agree, actually, with, with what the article said, because basically the Met said, well, this is different from you know the previous scandal we've had, uh, because James Levine. Well, yeah, I was going to leave it without that, but it's different from the previous scandal because Levine was employed by the Metropolitan Opera in, in a leadership position, and they're basically saying we're going to allow LA Opera to finish their investigation of Domingo because they're employing him as a singer, so he's not part of their leadership. They don't feel like he's putting anybody in danger in an immediate sense or anything like that, and they're allowing him to work while. While an investigation is taking place, but that that flies in the face of of what they said principally would change, of what Gelb said would change, you know. Um, and so, it's an interesting situation to be an employee there. And apparently, you know, many people feel like they've been uh, there was a bait and switch pulled on them, you know. Anyway, Antonio Brown's a horrible person and is never going to work in the NFL again. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, he, he said as much on Twitter, but his agent, if you talk to him today, says that, quote, a few teams are still interested in him. I will be interested to see how that works out. You know, but this this goes back to the thing that we were talking about last week about how, you know, these disinterested third parties are being asked to come and, like, you know, 
put together these investigations and companies are putting up their hands and hot potatoing and saying not it and waiting for someone else to do the work. That's exactly what Galba the Met have done just now is mm-hmm. said, look, somebody else is working on this. We don't need to do it. Meanwhile, we're going to put together, you know, our show with Domingo and Natrebko and we're going to make as much money as we can from it because we're probably going to get sued after this. So well, we're going to need some way to make some cash. And it's like, it is their problem. And yeah. that is the, that, and I know you agree with that, but, it really, and as we talked about last week, it is the Mets issue. It is all of our issue. Why not be, why not be on the cutting edge of that decision? And like, you have to understand for me too, this is one of my musical heroes. Totally. Same with uh, Pavarotti, who was a notorious womanizer. Right. Um, and were he alive today, absolutely would have been me too'd. And while still musical titans from the last century, and especially because we only have a century of recorded music, like these guys will live on forever. But that doesn't dismiss what has happened. And that doesn't mean that we can't make a change in culture. And we don't have to let perversive behavior continue to permeate throughout these organizations just to sell tickets. Did you make up a new word, perversive? I like it. I think perverse. I did. No. I p- you want pervasive, perverse. perverse so it's perversive. pervasive. It's yeah, pervasive. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Trademark. I'll take it. Right. Yeah. I just, why don't we just, why can't we just make changes? Well, why? I mean, I do think, though, that the Met has, you know, the thing about law is that there's never a yes or no answer and there's always a conversation and right. there are ways to talk right. yourselves into and out of everything. So, do they have a legal leg to stand on to leave him there and kind of an innocent until proven guilty? Yeah, they kind of do because Absolutely. no charges have been filed. So, officially they you know do do i think it's the right thing to do absolutely not i am i am team toby and everybody else that is is not so domingo on this for sure Mm -hmm. but in terms of having a legal leg to stand on they can absolutely put together a narrative that says we're doing the right thing we're waiting until he's actually been criminally prosecuted and he's actually been found guilty now we all know the answer to this but i can see exactly how their crack team of attorneys have put together a narrative that defends them yeah yeah, I don't know what else to we say. We have I'm to figure out what's it. happening with the Amajet story. Maybe we don't have the time to talk about oh, it. Oh, no, it, I, it was actually quite, it was a lovely Twitter post. There, I don't think there's any drama. She's going to write a book. And she just said, change is good. That's part of it. Yeah. She, she said the news started to leak, and she was going to wait uh, for an internal memo to be sent out to the WAPO, and, and it got out. And she, she tweeted today about six hours ago, seven hours ago, and was just like, yeah, I'm resigning and on November 22nd to write a book and, and be with my children, my child. Well, I hope that, you know, arts coverage continues at Washington Post. At well, oh, I'm sure it yeah, will. I mean, yeah, no, no, she'll she'll be replaced with somebody. But y- yeah, well, to 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 the extent that she covered it, yeah. which was thoughtful. And well, she was a singer, I think, and so she really understood. Yeah, a she lot was of a great critic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was a nice to have critic. that voice on the inside. But yeah. I mean, this is um, November's still a little ways away, so I imagine there's some sort of thoughtful genuine well you, know, you would think but we have in chicago the yeah no we have replaced Andrew yeah. Patner and so hopefully the jazz critic took took over at chicago tribune so oh fair yeah. fair point yeah. i i don't know what i think about vanity fair telling me that opera is having a woke renaissance i don't know if i need them to tell me that I, I, I appreciate the nod, um, but if they could just not use the word woke, <laughs> that's uh, that's really my one request. No, I, seriously, just stop it. No, nobody should, nobody over the age of 30 and nobody with uh, with my uh, familial and racial background should use the word woke. Um, so stop it, <laughs> including me. Stop it right now, Hardgrave. Anyway, um, no, I think that. Actually, uh, you said it like seven times. I'm just, 
as your friend, it's okay. <laughs> it's it's like the hot stove you're not supposed to touch. It's like, quit saying woke. No, woke. Oh, no. Um, no, I mean, but I think the writing in the article is is genuine. I think it's he's got a point, you know. Plotkin hits it on the head. He says, in daily life, people don't live in as passionate a way as they did in the past. They are very caught up in multitasking and all kinds of things. Opera asks you to give yourself over to it. I know for me that is 100% true. Mm. I spend, mm. you know, 80% of my day multitasking, including doing things simultaneously while I sleep. You know, mama's got a hair mask on. She's got her face mask on, you know. So I'm making the most of all my time, including <laughs> my sleeping hours. It really does take a lot for me to sit down, shut up, pay attention. And I'm somebody that speaks the language. I am somebody that is already, like, deeply interested in this art form. And even for me now, I have noticed my attention span for a legit straight-up opera from when I was an eager grad student and a few years out of grad school to now, it's like I've got a good hour in me before my brain wanders a little bit and says, do I need to check my email? Should I be yeah. checking my text messages? So I think that, you know, anything that they are able to do to kind of mix it up, find ways for it to be kind of done in sort of smaller servings with slightly more, you know, relevancy to develop a different type of audience base is a good idea. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. So, don't have too much time to talk about the performances specifically, but I have to shout out to two basses and a dancer, uh, Alex Rosen, who played Somnus in Semele, who sort of had like this cold Drago, Aquaman feeling, and his scene as Sleep was definitely a show stealer. Um, the bass, Zachary James, who I think is like seven feet tall. I'm not kidding you. He's enormous. Six, he's yeah. Six foot eight. Yeah. Who, who played the cook in uh, Love of Three Oranges. Amazing. Uh, really hilarious scene. The audience went crazy for it, and he looked amazing in this chicken costume. You can find it online. And the dancer, I'm losing my uh, Lindsay Mathias, who uh, was also the associate choreographer and uh, featured soloist in Semele. Uh, she had some of the most heartbreaking moments. Very Pina Bausch, very Batsheva, very exposed, full nudity. It was sort of insane, but she was incredible. Thank you, Oliver Camacho. Ashley Hardgrave, good call, bad call? Yes, good call for the New York Phil and Jaap von Sweden for bringing in a legitimately interesting challenge in Car Kelly O'Hara for doing Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915. Not officially opera, but I mean, come on, isn't it? Have you heard Barber? Tell anyway, uh, yeah, no, Tomasini at the New York Times is saving a place on his best of the year list for her. Uh, the reviews were great, and she's uh, she's somebody that I think can hack it, so good for them for reaching out. Tobias Wright. Uh, o19 Festival was an incredible opportunity. Thank you for having Opera Box Score out. Um, Opera Philadelphia, visit Philly. Um, thank you for hosting us. And whoever wants us to come do that, we we are ready and willing. We're looking at you, Opera Canada. Let's go, Opera <laughs> Canada! <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. The general managers at WNUR are Henry Moskal and Somil Sangvi. Our announcers, Dora Modell at VoxerShorts.com. Our theme con, Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and some on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, even if your baseball team clearly isn't going to the playoffs. We're back on Monday, September 30, with more news from Opera Land and our hot takes on those stories join us. This is WNUR 89.3 FM and HD, Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago Sound Experiment. <laughs>